are continuing our journey through the Lord's Prayer. And one of the, the things that we've said is that in addition for this, uh, uh, this prayer being a prayer for us to repeat, it's also a paradigm that Jesus is calling his people to embody. <clears throat> and this line that we get to today from Matthew chapter 6, verse 12, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors, is one of the clearest pictures of how he's calling us not just to a certain prayer, but to a new way of life as those that would embody his kingdom reign here on earth, uh, here and now. And so um, <clears throat> obviously this line gets translated multiple ways. Over here we have forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Uh, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And so they're all the same message, the same idea, just different metaphors or different pictures. Um, this morning we're going to focus in on the metaphor of debts. And um, the parable that Gretchen read for us uh, really captures this, um, this picture of uh, the need to be forgiven and to forgive. And so, again, in this parable, in Matthew 18... Um, Jesus is describing what life looks like in the kingdom of heaven, what life looks like in God's reality when God's rule and reign is enacted. And uh, it's this parable of this king who forgives his servant of this huge debt, and then the servant who is unwilling to forgive the debt uh, that's against him. And so <clears throat> we'll start in verse 22. Um, Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Some translations would say 70 times seven times. And so <clears throat> for Peter going, he's apparently, I don't know if it's hypothetical or a real situation he's facing, where somebody continues to sin against the other person over and over again. And Peter's going, how many times should I forgive this same person? And he probably had a similar mentality to those of us that would say, you know, fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. Like, really, should I continue to let this other person hurt me, take advantage of me, sin against me uh, over and over again? So Peter's like, how about seven? Seven seems like a magic biblical number. Should we cap it at seven? And that seems pretty generous. And Jesus comes out and goes, not seven, but 77 or 70 times 7, which would be 490. Either it's 77 or 490, the point is a lot and forever and to the point where you no longer keep track, the point that you're going to lose count. But I don't think Jesus is just doing clever math. There's a, um, a first occurrence of this phrase, 77 or 70 times 7, and it goes back to the book of Genesis chapter 4. And uh, as we've talked about, a lot of times when we're trying to dig in to the meaning of particular biblical concepts or phrases, we go to the first mention in the scriptures to help us understand the context that the author is, is re relating to. And so in Genesis 4, we have this guy named Lamech. He's a fifth-generation descendant from Cain, who Cain killed Abel, right? And in uh, Genesis 4, chapter 20, or verse 23, he says, I have killed a man, Lamech's saying this, I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times, or 70 times, seven times. And so Lamech's 77 times of vengeance, of revenge, of getting even. And Jesus arrives and he takes Lamech's equation for vengeance 
and he turns it upside down into an equation for forgiveness and reconciliation. And so if you follow the trajectory of the story from Genesis 4, this 77 times vengeance of Lamech eventually soon leads to the day of Noah, right? When everything was messed up, everyone was evil, everything, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And so Jesus is kind of pulling us back into the story and saying if we go the way of the world, if we go the way of Lamech, it leads to ultimate destruction and separation. So I'm giving you a new way, a new vision. And it's not revenge, it's forgiveness. So I want to start with what I think is probably one of the more troubling or confusing parts of this whole passage. And it's the very last verse that we read. In verse 35 of Matthew 18, he says, This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Okay, so Jesus has painted this picture of this really miserable existence for those who fail to forgive as they've been forgiven. And the language that he uses here um, is one of those places that, if I'm honest, I kind of wrestle with. Not just because it kind of is offensive or an uncomfortable idea, but how does it synthesize um, and become congruent with the heart of Jesus and the revelation that we have of him in the Father. And so um, what I want to say is that I think he, Jesus, is painting a picture for us. And the point of it is that God never wants me or you or anyone else to be imprisoned by the bondage of unforgiveness. And when Jesus teaches us to pray this line of the prayer, he's revealing something about the heart of God. That God is a forgiving God, and God is desirous that his people, you and I and everyone else, would avoid being imprisoned by the bondage of unforgiveness. And so he's not saying that if there is somebody we have failed to forgive in our life, that we are going to be eternally punished by the Father. He's saying that the fact that we have an unforgiving heart exposes the fact that we haven't opened our hearts to the forgiveness of God. Right? And so our failure to forgive as we've been forgiven isn't the thing that causes us this... uh, this state of existence that Jesus says he wants us to avoid, he's saying it's the thing that exposes, right? So we're planting different trees in our yard right now, transplanting from other places, and some of them are growing really well and some of them are dying. And I'm a terrible gardener. I just kind of stick stuff in the ground and hope it works. Um, And sometimes it does. And so I've got these two aspens that I just planted, um, a few months ago, and one of them has really taken root, and it's got leaves and new life on it, and the other one is a stick um, in the ground. And the picture there is that the lack of fruit or the lack of leaves isn't what killed the bad tree, right? It just exposes the fact that it's dead. The fact that it doesn't have any fruit or leaves, that's not the problem with it. Right? That's the result of the problem, that this thing hasn't been taken care of or whatever it is. And so the question that Jesus is kind of posing, he goes, if you want to know 
that you have a real relationship with God, then ask yourself this. Do I have a forgiving heart? Am I someone who is prone to extend the grace, mercy, and forgiveness that God has shown me to others? And if I do find that I'm able to forgive, not that it's always easy or whatever, but if I am able to forgive, then it's a sign that I have truly been forgiven. And if I'm not able to forgive, then chances are I'm living in the imprisonment to the bondage of unforgiveness. And that's not what God wants for his people. That's not what God wants for his people. And so I want to f- focus in on verse 30 or 27 that defines the idea of forgiveness for us. And it's these three words or three phrases that describe how the king um, or the servant's master extends forgiveness to him. And this is a paradigm of how God extends forgiveness to us and what forgiveness is in general. And so the, the, we'll just go through these three lines. The servant's master, number one, took pity on him took pity on him. So the first part of being forgiven or forgiving has to do with pity. Now, this is a hard thing because this has to do with the heart. This has to do with that sense when your heart goes out to someone, that you feel compassion or empathy towards them. Now, we're able to feel that when it's somebody who is suffering or somebody who we love who's going through it. We take pity on them. But somehow, God's paradigm for forgiveness starts with us taking pity on the person who has sinned against us. Which that gets a little trickier, right? It means to identify with them. To realize how much we have in common with them. And it's totally unnatural. Our heart in those moments of being sinned or hurt hurt against, we want to identify them as other, as different, as unlike ourselves. We want to dwell on how different we are from the person who's crossed us. And what we see, the picture of God in this master, is that he takes pity upon us who have sinned against him. And for us to forgive others starts with compassion. Now, it's interesting because our natural desire is to reduce those who have sinned against us to their sin. That they did something to us, therefore that's what they are or who they are. And so if somebody tells me a lie and I ask, and you ask me, why would they lie to you? And I'd say, because they're a liar. They're a big fat liar and that's what liars do is they lie, right? Now, if I tell a lie to somebody else and you ask me, why did I lie? I would say, it's really complicated, right? (laughs) It's a long story and I didn't want to hurt their feelings or whatever. But I'd be pretty slow to say because I'm a big fat liar and that's what liars do, right? But if, so that's the picture of going somehow as those who are forgiven and called to forgiveness, our first invitation is to identify ourselves in the face of the other, even if that person would be one we would call our enemy. So here's how Miroslav Volf, the Croatian theologian, says it. Forgiveness flounders because I exclude the enemy from the community of humans, even as I exclude myself from the community of sinners. And so God, in his great mercy comes to us in the human form 
of Jesus. And though we have sinned against him, he has pity on us. He shows compassion to us. He moves into our world, <clears throat> and though, though he doesn't owe us anything, he takes pity upon us and now calls us to go and do the same. Secondly, verse 27, servant's master took pity on him and secondly canceled the debt. So how much did the servant owe the king? We're told it's 10,000 talents. And the footnotes in my Bible say that one talent is roughly what an average worker would make over 20 years. Okay, so this is a lot of money. So let's say over the course of a 40-year career, you would earn two talents. And if we translated that into a nice round number, if you earned the equivalent of $50,000 a year for 40 years, you would make $2 million. So let's call this $10 billion, right? $10 billion. And so now all of a sudden your student loans don't sound so terrible anymore. But that's what this guy owes him, a lifetime uh, multiple lifetimes of, of wages. And so it's a significant amount of money even to a king. And the king could have probably imprisoned this guy and his family and seized all his assets, but instead of making the servant pay it back, the king pays the debt himself. So the reality is that forgiveness always costs somebody. You really can't just cancel a debt. The way that you cancel a debt is by paying it yourself. So if I let you borrow my car and you wreck it, how does that play out? Well, either I can make you pay for it or I can say I'm going to pay for it myself. And forgiveness is when I pay instead of making you pay. The truth is somebody has to pay. There's always a cost to forgiveness. And so when it comes to something other than money, right, when someone sins against you, trespasses against you, you have two options. First, you can make them pay, which again is the way of Lamech. Try to make them suffer the way you've suffered. Try to give them the cold shoulder, gossip, spread rumors about them. Try to make them feel eternally bad. Root for them for things to go poorly in your life. When someone sins against you, you have two options. The first is you can make them pay. Or the second is that you pay. You refuse to make them pay. And you choose to forgive even if you don't feel forgiveness towards them. And the logic of this is simple. The famous quote from Mandela, of course, is that resentment is like drinking poison and then hoping it will kill your enemies. There's an incredible freedom in forgiveness that even though it costs us significantly in some cases, it's nothing compared to the cost of unforgiveness. My favorite poet is a guy named Buddy Wakefield, and he has this poem called Hurling Crowbirds at Mocking Bars. And one of the lines is that forgiveness is the release of all hope for a better past. Let you think about that for a sec. On one hand, forgiveness seems to be illogical, 
right? Why would I pay when you're the one who has the debt to pay? But the reality is that there is a logic to God's paradigm of forgiveness. And it simply has to do with accepting the fact that no matter how long I stay stay bitter, angry, or resentful for you, it will not improve my past. And so forgiveness has to do with stepping into God's future, giving up all hope for a better past. So the king takes pity on him, he cancels the debt, and then finally he lets him go. He lets him go. Now, we often hear the, the two words forgive and forget <clears throat> used at the same time, interchangeably, even synonymously. Sometimes you just have to forgive and forget. But forget is something that happens to you. Forgive is something you make happen. Eventually, you probably will forget in most cases. Whatever sins people have against you, the time they hurt your feelings or whatever, when you're talking small stuff. The memory fades away. It doesn't hurt as badly down the road a year or 10 or whatever as it did today. Forget is something that happens to you. But this act of letting him go, this active forgiveness of saying, I'm choosing to forgive. I'm choosing to pay this debt, to cancel what is owed. Because that is what God has done. So then the crazy part of this story is what happens when this forgiven servant leads, leaves the king? Well, you would expect that this guy who's received grace, mercy, forgiveness, and love would then turn and be the most gracious, merciful, forgiving, and loving person in the world. But it doesn't happen. Instead, he goes out and basically after getting $10 billion of debt forgiven, his buddy who owes him 50 bucks, he goes and tries to kill him, right? And the reality is, is that this isn't that crazy, is it? Because we know, those of us who are in Christ, that all of our sins have been forgiven, all of our debts have been canceled. God in Christ has done everything necessary to take the punishment and consequences for our sins so that we can stand redeemed, righteous, justified, our shame, our guilt, forever covered and done away with. And you would think we would then be those kinds of people as well, but I know in my heart and in yours as well that there's still a struggle to make that connection at a practical level that the way of Lamech is way more instinctive and natural for so many of us. And the way of Jesus wants to take that first instinct, that first response in the face of sin, and invite us to remember what God has done for us and how we can extend that towards others. So take pity, cancel the debt, and let him go. One of the things that we'll see throughout the the prayer as we continue to study it is that in many ways, Jesus is giving what you could call kind of a mission statement for his own life and ministry and work on earth. And you can go line by line and see how this isn't just Jesus' theology or Jesus' way of praying, 
but he himself is the embodiment of each of these lines in the prayer. So like last week when we were talking about daily bread, ultimately Jesus is the bread of life, right? And today as we talk about forgiveness, Jesus is not just a moral teacher that's helping us understand forgiveness. He is showing how he himself is the one who forgives and is our forgiveness. And one of the things we need to remember is that this prayer is given in the plural to a community of disciples who are being invited into this new way of living and being. And so the, the tone of it, the vocabulary of it, has to do with you all. Forgive us our debts as we forgive one another. So this isn't just individual spirituality, but Jesus is imagining a community marked by radical forgiveness. A community that's, first of all, living in relationships that are close enough for us to sin against one another and requiring forgiveness. So he doesn't pretend that the church is going to be a place where nobody sins against each other. He assumes that we will, that we will hurt each other. But the difference is that we're a community that forgives. I would say that same paradigm applies to Christian marriage and the Christian family. The true mark of a Christian marriage or family isn't that the, the people don't sin against each other. It's that when we do, we forgive. And so Jesus is picturing <clears throat> this kingdom community marked by forgiveness, where we've got stories, <laughs> where we've been through it together. We've confronted each other. We've hurt each other. And yet we still gather around the table as recipients of grace. Have you ever had significant debt canceled? When I was in high school, I racked up a pretty significant amount of debt to my parents just because mostly I just kept breaking things, right? like wrecking their cars and <laughs> ruining their stuff. And every time, they would, uh, they would just kind of add it up. And I, it, was, it was a few thousand dollars by the time I graduated. And, <clears throat> and it really put a strain on the relationship I had, especially with my dad during those years. Because every, you know, I didn't make much money, but every time he would see me go out and spend money on something, he was like, you know, you owe me a couple thousand dollars, right? And you bought a new skateboard. Um, and it would have taken me at that point, you know, working part-time, whatever I was doing, probably a couple of years to be able to dig out of that debt to my parents. And I was graduating, getting ready to do what was next. And uh, for graduation, my parents canceled my debt. Um, which I was incredibly stoked on and grateful for. But that's a risky thing to do, isn't it? There's some risks associating, especially when you're in a parental role, right? The risk would be that I'm not learning my lesson. I'm not learning how to take responsibility, <clears throat> that I think this is just kind of what happens in the world, <laughs> you know? But in grace, in wisdom, I believe, and it's not that everybody always has to do this for their kids, it was an incredible gift. 
that not only <clears throat> made me whole financially, but actually allowed me and my parents to enter into a much healthier and loving, more loving relationship. Right? And so this is what God does for us. This is what God does for us, and there is a risk associated with it. That we don't always learn our lesson, or we don't always have this change of heart that should logically flow out of being forgiven. And that's where you get this picture of God's relentless, even reckless love. That he loves and he forgives and he blesses over and over and over again. And so, two final thoughts this morning, friends. Um, Where's a place in your life where God is offering you the forgiveness of Jesus and you're still trying to pay back the debt yourself? What's that thing that you continue to hold on to? Your sin, your shortcoming, your failures that you have been desperately seeking to try to make things right with God. The good news is you are forgiven in Christ. God's not mad at you. He loves you and he accepts you as his own son. And there will still be consequences, there'll still be a journey, but he has paid the debt. It is forgiven. And the invitation is to come and to receive it. And the second question is, who or where do you need to extend the forgiveness of Jesus? To those who have hurt you, wronged you, trespassed you in big or small ways. Who is Christ calling you to extend his forgiveness to? And that would start within this room, within this community, that we would be a community marked by the forgiveness of Jesus, but then it extends to the rest of life as well. It extends backward into our family of origin, and it extends forward into everything that God's got in front of us. So those are my questions for you to ponder this morning as we come to the table, as we worship, as we confess our sin to God and trust Jesus as our Savior. We know that Christ stands before us on our behalf and says, their sin has already been paid for and never needs to be paid for again. Praise be to God. Will you stand and pray with me? Lord Jesus, so many of us have heard for years and years that our sins are forgiven, and that our debt has been paid, and we believe that at a certain level, but we all know experientially that it doesn't always feel that way, right? that we allow the things that we've done or the things that have been done to us to become our <clears throat> functional identity as opposed to seeing ourselves as you see us, first and foremost, in your Son, cleansed, forgiven, and loved. 
And so we need your Holy Spirit to minister this truth to our hearts. Lord, to help us see how great of sinners we, have, we are and how greatly we've forgiven we are. So I pray that even this morning you would send your Spirit to come to convict us of our sin, but to convict us of our righteousness as well. And I pray that you would continue the good work you've started in this community and transforming us into a people that embodies the forgiveness of Christ to one another and to the world, that we may truly be a blessing as you have blessed us, that we may love as you have loved us and forgive as you've forgiven us. So we come to this table together as a family, a family of sinners that have been forgiven because of the life, death, resurrection of your son. And so we come and receive this gift again. In Jesus' name we pray.